I also gave up, you know, trying to change people's behavior, you know, so people's behavior not to drink, not to drink too much, not to smoke, to live a healthy uh, life. Um, it, it's, it, uh, it's not effective very much. So uh, I'm moving on towards changing the environment uh, itself. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Shoji Nakayama. He's a medical doctor and public health researcher who's at the intersection of environmental health and public safety. Dr. Nakayama brings a wealth of expertise in exposure science, and he focuses on the vulnerabilities of children to environmental risks. Today, we overview his career, his passion for public health, his development as a doctor, his exciting career in post-disaster health, his groundwork research on forever chemicals and emerging contaminants. Dr. Nakayama is the Deputy Director for Japan's Pivotal Environmental Children's Health Study, which is including over 100,000 pair bonds, and is passionate about interdisciplinary approaches to biomonitoring, exosome research, and improving public health. Thanks for listening. Well, why don't we just dive in, Dr. Nakayama? I actually got email and recommendation from Jose Domingo, who's a toxicologist, and he recommended I talk to you because of your focus on children's health, heavy metals, exosome, and other related topics. So, but before we dive in, I wanted to know, Dr. Nakayama, could you just give us a quick primer on your background, uh, your current role, your background in chemistry, anything that's relevant? Okay. So, um, I am a medical doctor by training, and then... Uh, after graduating the medical school, I obtained, I did some uh, medical training and then I went into a graduate school and then I took my PhD in public health. Uh, that was all in Japan. And then uh, just after I took the PhD, I was invited uh, by the United States Environmental Protection Agency, US EPA, which was uh, about to start research on perfluorinated ke- uh, chemicals. Uh, I don't know you you have heard about, but uh, it is it is called PFAS, PFAS, problem everywhere in the world. Took a position at the uh, as a visiting scientist at the US EPA uh, in uh, 2005. And I spent uh, six years with the US EPA uh, working on mainly perfluorinated compounds, PFAS, exposure assessment. So that means uh, how much people are exposing to those chemical, particular chemicals. But the later half of the years moved, uh, well, I expanded the uh, you know, our research interest into other chemicals, including like pharmaceuticals in the environment, and as well as uh, personal uh, care products, we call PCP, you know, personal care products. Then, so we assess the environmental exposure to those chemicals, and then for a uh, effect on, uh, you know, uh, human health. Then, <clears throat> I was invited by the National Institute for uh, Environmental Studies, the current uh, institution uh, of Japan, to join the uh, Japanese national scale children's study, which is called Japan Environment and Children's Study. This study involves 100,000 participants, I mean, pairs of participants, pair means mother and child. So uh, it, that started in 2011. So I just uh, joined the team uh, when they just started. So uh, I moved to Japan uh, in Mar- uh, April 2011 and joined the team of the uh, Japan Environment and uh, Children's Study, uh, JECS, J-E-C-S in short. Then, uh, since then, I'm uh, working on that uh, study. And then, as I told you, that JECS is a na- nationwide, uh, nationwide birth cohort study. Birth cohort means recruit uh, mothers, with uh, the pregnant mothers, and then follow them up until they give birth uh, to their children. And then we also follow the children. They uh, get like adults in 40 or 60 years. So that's the long-run national uh, study. But uh, as you know that uh, just after I moved to Japan, that was like uh, just before, I would say, 
I need to say.、Uh, just before I moved to Japan, Japan had a great earthquake in the eastern、uh, eastern Japan.、Uh, that was that was I think on eleventh of March, twenty、uh, eleven. And then、uh, when I came to just came to the, that was the first day、uh, of my、uh, work at the NIES. I was called、uh, by a team,、uh, and then told that there are some uh, mysterious uh, pneumonia is、uh, was happening in the area、uh, of、uh, the affected by tsunami, and then they dispatched me、uh, to the area and then to do the investigations, and then and so I was、uh, involved in the, the disaster、uh, response research. Uh, just after I took this, you know, position. So since then, it, it's it's been on already twelve years. But I've been doing this、uh, JEC study as well as disaster response study. So recently,、uh, five six years, I、uh, was involved with the. I, I'm working with NIH、uh, of the U, U, U.S. NIH.、Uh, they're doing、uh, disaster response research、uh, program. And then we're expanding that program to international setting. We, these couple of years, we're trying to expand it to、uh, Asian countries. So the disaster response research means that we need the research just after,、uh, right after the disaster happened. For example, flooding, hurricanes,、uh, earthquakes,、uh, wildfires. While the during the search and rescue period, so that. We can obtain、uh, pristine data from the uh, residents uh, involved in that、uh, disaster, and then we can follow them up for a long time. So there is some emergency dispatch, for example, medical teams or chemical cleaning teams or firefighters.、Uh, however, there are there have been no long term. Monitoring program on those uh, disaster uh, impacted areas, not only the residents but also those、uh, response workers.、Um, so we are we are now involved in the program to increase the capacity of, for example, local universities or local government to do the research just after the、uh, disaster happening. So、uh, that's the.、Um, Kind of a、uh, over、um, oversee of my, I mean, what do you call、uh, overall、uh, overview of my my work, current,、uh, the past work and then current work. Doctor Nakayama, I, I'd like to start maybe just by asking, what drew you away from actual practicing medicine to the public health sphere? What were your interests in the toxicology or kind of those spheres? Yeah, so my training was at the hospital. Uh, very near to sh- the shipyard, I would see in many patients coming from the shipyard. Then, and all,、uh, you know, we we treat the patient. They come back to work, but they they all, they they soon come back to the hospital.、Uh, so, and、um, I thought that we need to do something about、uh, the prevention. Um, so, so, so that I went jumped into the、uh, public health field, and then so that we can do some preventive work, and then especially not just only doing epidemiology, but also I was、um, interested in like toxicology of, for example, the chemicals they used in the occupational settings, for example, paints or organic solvents or something. So I mainly studied in those,、um, you know, chemicals effects on the、uh, the workers, you know,、uh, in occupational settings. What were the ship worker issues you were seeing from the solvents they were using in repairs, or what were your initial observations? Right. So,、um, for example, they use paints, and they need to use solvents to、uh, dilute the paint and then apply the paints. But they、uh, come into deep into, for example, the tankers, and then heat was very.、Uh, they, they have very high heats, and then they have、uh, very closed、uh, work environment,、uh, so that they exposed to those、uh, chemicals. And then not only the shipyards, but also, for example, the the area was very、uh, popular for like, what do you call that? Uh, uh, the mining. Then.、Uh, 
so there there are workers uh, working on the mining, and then also uh, there are workers on the, um, uh, for example, uh, the small ship making, making. They use fiber reinforced plastics, and then also they uh, you, so th so that for that they use resins, and then they need to use solvents, and then they have to use uh, face masks. But the workers tend not to to put them on properly so that they are uh, exposing to those uh, chemicals and they are having uh, liver function damage, liver damages, as well as uh, vision impairments. So that, that drove me uh, to into the public health field. Do you have any effect with the shipyard owners or any relationship? I mean, did you try to initiate any kind of public health changes? Or educational programs. I'm just curious what the relationship with the actual, you know, shipbuilders, or if you developed any rapport with them. No, the that time I did not have that much uh, capability. So um, I just, um, well, as you know, that uh, uh, medical school, do, uh, you know, does not teach such a kind of things. You know, uh, no chemicals, uh, very little toxic uh, toxicologies. So I need to learn uh, from scratch. Uh, in my um, you know PhD period, and I I never did any chemical experiments uh, you know since I entered the PhD program. So then after that kind of initial exposure, you move on to public health, and then what was your? How did you get recruited to the EPA in the U.S.? Was that were you specifically working on Forever Chemicals, or what was your focus that made you want to go to the EPA in the U.S.? Well, that's 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 an interesting uh, story, and then I was uh, completely accidental. You know, my PhD mentor, the professor, died just after I took the PhD degree, and then, as you know, that I I lost the the way I go. You know, so uh, and then that time uh, I got the call, just a phone call from. Um, other uh, professors in uh, Kyoto, and then he just uh, told me that uh, if you are interested in, uh, you can come to my lab uh, and continue your work. And then, and I took that offer. And then, and that uh, lab was the was doing the very fast, very initial research in that forever chemicals, and um, that. Uh, at that time, they were only uh, measuring PFOS and PFOA, but the that lab was the first lab who did the systematic uh, investigation of drinking waters all over Japan. And then they published the work in 20, uh, 2004. And then- Sorry yes. to interrupt. Maybe you could just give a one second summary of what PFAS uh, chemicals are for people who aren't familiar with that term, forever chemicals and whatnot. Okay, so the the PFAS is the is a as a chemical a fluorinated chemical uh, that was used for, for example, uh, making polymers, uh, nonstick polymers such as like Teflon. Teflon is a trade uh, trade name, but uh, there are many you know those polymers that are used for nonstick purposes. Uh, for example, inner coating of our hamburger wraps, you know, those uh, chemicals repel both oils and water so that uh, they can use that as like a repelling water um, or oil. So, so they can use those chemicals uh, uh, on the surface of, for example, carpet treatment so that uh, or clothing so that uh, they can keep their carpets or uh, clothing clean. And also they repel water so that they can use that for uh, like uh, uh, skiing or other water activities. So they can spray them, uh, those chemicals on the boots and uh, shirts and stuff. Um, as well as they, uh, uh, they're, they're, they have like a surfactant, very, very high property of the, uh, uh, performance of surfactants so that they are used in firefighting foams. Um, so they are heavily, they have been heavily used in like firefightings uh, in aviation uh, industry as well as uh, Air Force all over the world. Um, so, and then the use of those chemicals and such a uh, usage 
contaminated surface waters, groundwaters, or soils. And then there was little knowledge about toxicology of those uh, chemicals back in like 2005. Well, I think industry knew something about, but the public didn't know. So the EPA and the other uh, universities, researchers, uh, studied the toxicity research, uh, toxicology research on those perforated chemicals and have been found in toxicity on on human health. Um, And then since then, there are many epidemiological studies and then are revealing some effects on uh, of those PFAS chemicals and on human health as well. So in these days, PFOS, PFOA, uh, and then the other chemical, and then also they are very persistent in the environment as well as in the humans. Their uh, biological half-lives are uh, like three to five years in human beings. So uh, they stay in our body as well as in the environment very long time. So uh, that was that. That's why uh, some of the chemicals, some of the PFAS chemicals, are listed in the Stockholm Convention, which is a regulatory, uh, I mean, a- agreement to restrict the persistent organic uh, chemical uh, pollutants, uh, which is uh, the pops in short. Um, so, what were some of the immediate? health effects that you were finding with the Kyoto lab or with the EPA lab? Was it surprising or were they worse than you expected or less toxic? What were your general observations in the first and how that research has changed? Yeah. So those chemicals are thought not to interact with any biological you know, systems, but with, uh, we, we found that, well, the mainly EPA labs first, found that they interact with, for example, uh, lipid metabolism systems, as well as some uh, thyroid hormone systems, so that they disrupt the lipid metabolism, as well as uh, thyroid hormone systems. And then and then recently, you know, in like 10 years or so, the thyroid hormone uh, system has been found to be very important for brain development. And then after that, the people are looking at the effect of those PFAS on the development of uh, like um, neural development of children. And then many uh, researchers finding uh, the effects of those chemicals on developmental effects. Um, so that's the, that's the uh, main concern. Um, however, the, uh, how can I say, the human evidence is kind of, uh, how can I say, it's, it's, uh, P- for PFAS and P4, I think human uh, evidence is uh, almost uh, sufficient for regulation. But for the other uh, chemical species of PFAS, uh, we still don't have sufficient evidence. Uh, Dr. Nakayama, so you moved to the U.S. and then what was your experience and what was your general impression of the EPA? What was your first impression coming from Japan? Yes, it was a very, uh, very interesting, you know, the first and uh, I I learned my English from British teacher and then couldn't understand very much about the Southern. Uh, so I went to North Carolina first. So I could not very much, you know, understand the Southern English. So I had hard time communicating with them. But uh, but it was the first for, uh, first year. But anyway, when I arrived, uh, they were only dealing with toxicological samples. And uh, as you can, uh, as you know, that uh, in the toxicological study, they use very high concentrations uh, of chemicals to apply. So they were, for example, measuring blood or urine or any kinds of fluids or any tissues of, for example, mice or uh, rats. So they were measuring very high concentrations. And then because of that, their analytical systems are very much contaminated by those chemicals as well. And then also, those, as I tell, uh, told you, those chemicals are used everywhere. So those chemicals were used also in the analytical instruments and analytical, analytical equipments or uh, tubes and um, a- anything. 
So they were dealing with very high backgrounds of those chemicals, especially PFOS and P4, but、uh, any other kinds of PFAS. So my first task was to reduce the background so that they can analyze a thousand times lower concentrations in the environmental samples. For example, surface water or drinking water.、Um, so my first task. So、um, I was like, but 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 from, you know,、uh, I was from Japan, and they did the first. I, I they may might not, you know,、uh, trust trust me. So might not have trusted me. So、um, I asked them to give me a chance to occupy the. For example, the lab for for the first week, so that I can wash all the、uh, instruments、uh, to reduce the background. So I I did, you know, I did wash all the instruments、uh, for a week, and then success to reduce the background, so that we can now analyze the surface water samples, the thousand times lower concentrations. And then we started investigating the environmental contaminations. And what were some of your focuses there, like industrial sites, military bases, or what? Just general population kind of water samples, or what were you focusing on? So we didn't know anything about that time. So first,、uh, we took a boat,、uh, an EPA boat, and then we just、uh, sailed up the rivers、uh, near the EPA. And that was one of the largest river system, river basin within the North Carolina. It's a Cape Fear River basin,、um, and then、uh, you can see my publication on that. And then, so we collected samples from the headwater to all the way down to the mouth of the river, and then we analyzed those, you know, the river water samples for the PFAS chemicals. And then we found very interesting things. You know, for one, we found a discharge that were that contained very high PFAS concentrations, uh, very P,、uh, high PFAS. And that we later we found that was a, that was from Dupont in the、uh, manufacturer over there. And then we found another things that、uh, a little clique just flowing through the Air Force Reservation. And had very high concentration of PFAS, and that was the first, I think, time we found the military could be a source of the PFAS in the environment. As you're doing this research, what is your general feeling about contamination and toxicology? Is it evolving, or what are you? Are you being surprised? Are you changing the way you live? I'm just curious how your personal feelings about this evolve. Um. In that time, in the first three years or、um, uh, four years,、um, it was like we were just how can I say, just shading, uh, uh, you know, throwing some lights in the very dark field. You know, there was、uh, only little thing that we can scratch, and then there were we've just found that there are. So much things that we don't know yet, and then so we somehow collaborated with, uh, well, communicated, I would say, with the industries. But、uh, because of the confidential business information, CBI, they can disclose very little to to the researchers. Um, I mean, EPA regulators may might have known, uh, the information, but um. On、uh, researchers' levels,、uh, we couldn't know the information, so it was like having a torch in the very dark, pitch dark places, and then finding out some very、uh, <clears throat> little paths to I don't know nowhere. So we didn't know where to go.、Um, so we collaborated with the toxicology labs, and they、um, keep finding the <clears throat> interesting、uh, effects. Um, but there are there are very few studies on humans in that time, before like twenty twenty ten. Did you have、um, did the EPA contact Dupont regarding 
So they just said they weren't using those chemicals or they just didn't have to declare much information because they weren't regulated? Is that what you discovered? Um, well, no, no. They have, because those chemicals are registered already, uh, they submitted uh, information to the EPA regulators, but uh, we were not in a position to know every information about those confidential business information. Um, so, <clears throat> and then also those toxicological testings were mandated by a law, but those law, th those laws are very, those laws or regulations are kind of old so that uh, they don't have, uh, how can I say, uh, new sciences and that uh, regulations. For example, uh, no uh, mandate, uh, no mandation uh, on doing, uh, for example, thyroid hormone testing at that time, or maybe developmental uh, effect testing. So, so the industry were, I think, did everything on those regulations uh, properly. However, those regulations often does not uh, do not cover. Uh, everything. So, so we are, we've been finding some toxicological effects that were not included in uh, the mandatory testing in that time. Did you find the EPA to be captured by regulation, or I'm just curious how you dif you know differentiate it from the regulations of Japan? Is it stricter, looser, more vague? I'm just curious what that opinion is that's depending on the situation so that depends on the situation so i can definitely say that the eu is more advanced you know uh than the us or japan um so they take like a precautional uh principles um so gray it's black for the eu but for us or japan gray is white so um I would say gray is not black, uh, but for the EU, gray is black. So uh, the attitude towards the chemical regulation is very different from the EU uh, compared to the uh, US and Japan. The US, uh, Japan is very close to the US attitude. So you think that's a cultural issue or just a business climate or where does that I, I come from? I think it's a cultural plus business, you know, um, public interest, public voices, as well as uh, business interest. Moving on, you moved back to Japan, and then immediately the earthquake of um, 2011 hits. Could you tell me a little bit about your work on the emergency? What were you studying there? Were you focused on immediate chemical exposure during the, you know, an, an, an earthquake? Or what were your initial observations there when you went back to Japan? Yes. So, you know, I think one disadvantage or um, like a weak point of Japan uh, is is the lack of records of uh, what we did in the past. Um, so at that time, back in April 2011, we had no um, instructions what to do. So didn't know what what to look at. We didn't know what. Um, how we can proceed the research on, for example, the the, the pneumonia uh, that are happening in that area. So so we had to we had to build our program from scratch. So immediately after the earthquake, people started developing pneumonia, like a rare type. Yeah, they, right, right, and then they were developing some pneumonia, and there was an interest in pneumonia, and then. You know, the doctors there was treating those pneumonia with antibiotics first, but after they uh, they cured the uh, pneumonia with antibiotics, but they still have uh, different kinds of uh, pneumonia. Um, to what to that they had to use steroid. So we so it is very rare to have both infectious pneumonia as well as other type of pneumonia. In so, so the doctors were, you know, wondering why they have those two together. You know, for the infectious pneumonia, they they, they shouldn't use steroids, right. right? So after they treat the pneumonia, uh, infectious uh, pneumonia, 
then they had to uh, use steroid to treat the other type of pneumonia. So, but we don't know. We didn't know what was causing that. Um, so now we know that. But uh, so 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 we first went to this site and then to see what was going on. And that time was like four weeks after the event. That was the search and yeah, the the earthquake and the tsunami. Four weeks after that. So and you went to Fukushima, or where did you go? Uh, it was in Miyagi. Um, okay. Yeah, the Sendai. There was a um, also the hurt um, Sendai and then uh, Ishinomaki and then those uh, coastal area of Miyagi Prefecture. Um, Fukushima area, we couldn't even come into that time. Uh, in the Miyagi area, there was still the search and rescue uh, time. There were many cars with like uh, tapes. Um, and then that tapes means that the the search was so it's done. And then if the car is without the tape, there was the possibility that there was some uh, someone left uh, in the car. Um, that, that was the phase that time. And then so uh, we brought air samplers as well as uh, we uh, we investigated some um, bacterials uh, in the air. And also we uh, investigated some chemicals and then we uh, collected some water samples and soil samples and then we analyzed them for chemicals and bacterials. And then finally we found that uh, uh, the soils and then sediments, let's say, contain very high concentrations of endotoxin. Endotoxin is the some materials touched on the surface of uh, uh, bacteria. Uh, like uh, E. coli, and then the bacteria die. When bacteria die, they uh, so those endotoxins were released, and those are very much immunotoxic. And then, as you may heard that uh, some uh, hygiene hypothesis, you know, um, when children live near the livestock, they do not develop allergies. Um, so the one hypothesis is that they expose, they were exposed to like a very little amount of those endotoxins and that uh, stimulate immune system. And then so that they do not uh, develop allergies to like food allergies or other pollen allergies. But if you take excess amount of those endotoxins, you have so much immune system stimulation and probably get the pneumonia. So that's uh, that that that's what uh, we found. Uh, however, the we could not do systematic epidemiological studies over there because there were how can I say uh, search and rescues were uh, happening, and then all those uh, clean cleanups were happening. So so we could not perfectly determine the causality. However. Uh, but after that, we had the uh, many research uh, related to those uh, endotoxins and uh, pneumonia, and um, um, so we've we, currently we know that we need to look at the endotoxins over there. Were the endotoxins sourced from the livestock industry? Is that what your hypothesis is? That no, because- no, those were, those were from sediments. So the tsunami brought up those sediments to the residential area. And then dried, and those bacteria and those, uh, those uh, sediments died. And then the people there had to clean up whatsoever. They, they, they had all the sediments on their floors and then houses and the streets. So they had to clean them up. Um, so during the cleanup, they exposed to the dust. And then the dust, uh, I think, um, had the it- endotoxins in it. And the theory is that because they hadn't developed kind of a natural relationship to those bacterial sediments, the overexposure triggered the pneumonia, correct? Right, right. So because uh, tsunami brought uh, brought up all the sediments like um, industrial areas or residential areas, so there are many bacteria that had the uh, endotoxins on their surf- uh, um, membrane surfaces, and then they died. Uh, in a massive amount, 
And then so dust, the dried dust of the sediment contain very high concentrations of endotoxins. But that's but, very interesting but, because the work in yeah. the EPA was with um, human-made chemicals. And then yeah. this, this work is more <laughs> biological, I guess, natural, in quotes, it, sediments, you know, and exposure. Right. Right, but the but the later on, for example, the flooding events, you know, wiped out, for example, the automobile uh, manufacturers, and then they released some, uh, uh, you know, lipophilic, uh, I mean, uh, lipid type of uh, chemicals, as well as the tsunami uh, also released like uh, oils, uh, brought up the oils and spread the oils all around the residential areas. So those oils also uh, caused some pneumonia. So, um, so the, the later on, so we found that the two, so, but oh. there are no, no program that can do the systematic research at that time. Was there, did you develop a, a program or did Japan develop kind of a post, uh, catastrophe research program? So that is why I, um, uh, I started working with NIH, uh, of the U.S. and they developed a program that is called uh, disaster response research, DR2 in short. Um, so you can find those website in there. Uh, uh, NI, that, that's uh, NIEHS uh, is the leading institute within the NIH. However, so they developed many tools for the uh, epidemiological studies in the disaster settings, and they put them into the National Library of Medicine so that everyone can use it. And those tools are pre-IRB uh, approved. So ethical, they, they have uh, already ethical approval so that uh, they can use those uh, things very quickly. You know, as I, I you know, I, I need to tell you that I had to work with the local government to, to do the research just after the, um, uh, so we just went to the site and then uh, we thought that we need to do some research. However, we need we need uh, we had to work with the local government to get the approval to do the research and it took like four weeks we first get into the site just four weeks after the event but we had to wait four to five or maybe six weeks to start the research so that was also the lessons we learned uh, at that time we need to do we need to have the agreement uh, first with the local government. You know, we're the National Institute, so to do the proper research in proper time scale. Was that a budgeting issue or just like administrative control it's, issue? It's an uh, uh, administrative thing. And also, uh, those uh, local government has their own labs, their own environmental institutes, but they're also wiped out. So they lost the uh, ability to do the research. However, um, there are no framework uh, to uh, make the uh, you know the other municipality to help them. So we had to build all things that you know after that uh, that event. So the uh, it's it's the same as the Fukushima research. Moving on, so you helped develop the post disaster program that the NH developed. I wonder if they use that here in Hawaii after. The Lahaina fires. Right, right. I wonder if uh, FEMA or the NIH did anything to, you know, control or protect against the toxicological risk profile. Uh, I I don't know, but probably they had some uh, uh, local uh, university did some research, but uh, I I I I have not heard uh, the particular event about that. Well, that's one of the local concerns here. Is that you know. The combination, the fire was so massive that obviously all the toxicological issues post-fire or even to the emergency workers or people who, who didn't die, but the post-exposure death. Dr. Nakayama, moving back to, uh, you then move, I'm curious what you've learned now from all this kind of disaster exposure, and now you're kind of moving into the future with your children's study. Maybe we could talk about that and how you're trying to take those lessons and move it towards long-term longitudinal studies. So, so I think we talked about two things. Um, one is the man-made thing, and then the the second is the natural, na uh, you know, natural disaster thing. And then first, for the man-made thing, I think we need to involve different kinds of 
scientists and, and also different disciplinary. For example, recent, just recently, I think in the last few years, I've talked with chemists, real chemists, and also physical chemists, as well as um, organic chemists. They do not anything about those toxicology things. And then those toxicology people do not anything about industrial chemical like uh, research. So we need to have those, you know, you know, multidisciplinary is, is, is a kind of an old word, but in reality, there's no such a thing. Uh, from my experience in this children's study, as well as EPA study, it's a cat and mouth story, you know. It's it's never ending things, you know. Industry just uh, develop new chemicals, and then we researchers uh, research on the health effects, and then we find them. They change the structure a little bit, and then approved, and then they put them into the market, and we do the research on that, the substitute, and we find the also the toxicity and then change the formula very uh, little bit. And that's the cat and mouse things. But we need to change that circle. You know, we need to input uh, for, for this toxicology as well as epidemiology researchers has to focus on the mechanisms. Why a particular health effect? And then we need to understand that. And then we need to inform that knowledge to the industry side of chemist, uh, industry side of uh, scientists, so that they have to use those knowledge to create, to design safe chemicals from the first time. So coming back to the PFAS in short, very, very shortly, the industry did not know very much about the chemical, uh, physical chemical property or theory of the PFAS. So I talked with the many uh, industry people and they did not understand about the physical chemical uh, theory that was recently proposed by the Japanese researchers. And with that re you know, theory, we can now very much understand the scientific, I mean, uh, the basics of the chemicals so that we should be able to design a safe chemicals. So the science in this field should move into that. So we, uh, the health side of the, uh, and toxicology and health side of the scientists should work with the industry side of the uh, or a basic uh, scientist to design a safe product, safe chemical product in the first place. That's the first, that's the one thing you know the man-made side for the this natural disaster side. And we we still don't have uh, enough program. Uh, the U.S. is the best, I think, the country who has those research program in the uh, in the public is for public as well as response workers. Uh, however, we need to have we need to uh, develop more programs on that. So, do you think it's mainly an education issue and having more liaison between the private sector or more regulations or not how? only that, but also, well, yes, that's that's a training uh, thing. You know, we just talked about with the um, uh, NIOSH people, uh, CDC NIOSH people, that uh, we need such a program. They they have the train the trainers programs, for example, that they train the firefighters uh, leaders uh, how to protect their health, uh, their men's health. Well, uh, I, I, I shouldn't say men, but uh, um, uh, we don't have that such a program in, for example, Asian countries. So uh, we need that uh, program. But at the same time, we need the research, you know, to reveal the effects of those, for example, firefighting. So, that, so that, that's why I'm doing the research in Thailand. They have a natural wildfires there. They have community firefighters. They do not have the occupational firefighters, like US personal Japan. protective, yeah, yeah, yeah. So official firefighters uh, protections. So we need. Uh, we are now doing the uh, research on health effects of those firefightings on those uh, community firefighters, and then we're finding new findings. So uh, the research is important uh, on that area. So I mean, you want this kind of interdisciplinary integration. I think I saw that you have this research concept called the ep exosome. Is that correct? You have this kind of exposome. Yes. Could you walk me through that concept and how that applies to your work? Um, so the, very recently, many researchers in this field realized that in reality, we are exposing not only a single chemical, but also 
but also not only chemicals, but also other type of uh, environmental hazards, for example, like radiations or emotional stress, um, heat, and um, anything. You know, there's uh, all of the environmental stresses affects our health. Yes, that's understandable. And then also in the last 30 years, we have learned that genome research did not solve everything. So we thought that if we can read all the genomes, we can understand all the health status of, of humans or all the, all the diseases, but it was not true. And we could not understand only the half of the etiology of uh, the reasons for the uh, diseases. So the researchers are now, uh, that was from first from cancer researchers, but uh, researchers are now thinking about, we need to incorporate the environmental factors. However, uh, different from genome. Genome, we need one instrument to read genome. However, for the uh, environment, we, we call that exposome, just uh, uh, close to the, uh, the genome. Um, environmental exposures, we need different modalities. For example, air pollution, we need air monitoring. Uh, for the chemical exposure, we need some, for example, biomonitoring, like a blood measurement, urine measurement. So we need many, many kinds of measurements. And then, so the method developments are happening all over the world. For example, in the US and in Europe, they have the big, big, you know, research programs on those exposome. However, um, it's, it's just the start of the research and the concept. Uh, but I think it's uh, the way the the direction is 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 correct. Uh, looking at environmental effects on our disease and our health is correct, but we need more research on that to to dis disentangle the relationship between environment and the, our genome, our body itself. So, are you using some of that kind of multimodal approach to the children's study? Right, uh, we are on. Uh, but we are involved in hundred thousand children. If we, if you spend only five dollars uh, on children, that's a a huge amount of money, right? So, um, I mean, five hundred dollars uh, per person that gives up like a fifty million dollars uh, a uh, year, you know. So we we are doing as much uh, as we can do. Uh, to capture those exposome as much expo uh, environmental exposures, uh, but that's not perfect yet. So we are waiting for uh, those uh, research advances uh, so that we can measure those uh, on you know exposome you know environmental total exposures in like uh, blood system or urine systems. So in the Japan Environment Children's Study, what are you finding? What are your initial kind of observations that are of interest. And this uh, is a massive study. So I'm just curious. Right, right. So the initial focus uh, of our study is on chemical exposures. Um, so we've been finding, uh, for example, effects of mercury, lead, and cadmium on children's health. Uh, especially lead has uh, very much effect on everything. And then uh, and then also we are finding uh, finding Many other things, you know, on unexpected things. For example, screen times of children uh, at the age of one affected the brain development on uh, age of three. For example, the um, autism spectrum disorders, you know, on at the uh, age of three. So um, we're finding many uh, interesting things. Uh, but in the future, we are focusing on uh, like uh, reproductions and developments, and then and then. Uh, how, how can I say the later on um, other uh, um, diseases? You know, do you have children, Doctor Nakayama? Yes, two. Has this affected how you're raising your children? Uh, well, we found that uh, you know environmental effects on children's health is uh, individual children's are very small. This is kind of a chemical uh, climate change. You know. 1.5 average degrees increase is is almost nothing for us every day right so we uh, you know we have like um, 
uh, one easily 1.5 degrees difference in the morning and then uh, in the noon time, uh, this, this time of period. Um, so chemical effects on our health is very tiny individually. However, if you sum them up, for example, uh, some chemical affects our IQ, but those effects are like one IQ decrease uh, in, in one unit of chemical exposure uh, increase. Uh, however, if you sum up that one IQ increase in all the children born, for example, in the US or in, in Japan, that makes up a lot of, uh, chem uh, uh, for example, economic effects. So, for example, one IQ loss probably corresponds to 2% of GDP loss. So we uh, we don't know the effects of fluorine, but, uh, uh, but some chemical has the effect on the IQ. So one IQ loss for individual children, it, it's nothing. But if you sum up uh, to the entire population, that's a that gives up a big uh, effect. That's so that's uh, so so that's why I say that uh, chemical effects or environmental effects is close to the climate change. With uh, Japan's declining birth rate, and um, are you studying or trying to integrate any of the related reproductive strategies into the study? That's the next. Yeah, that's the uh, next. I mean, problem we need to uh, look at. We recruited. Uh, pregnant mothers, so that we could not, uh, we cannot study the preconceptual uh, effects. So we are going to follow our kids up, they uh, until they have their kids. So I hope that uh, we can see the effects. Um, however, however, that that should be like five, ten years later. Do you have any um, initial hypothesis or observations you'd like to you know specifically focus on yeah you know? uh, mainly we're focused on developmental effects uh on children uh because uh development people uh, children with the developmental disorders uh increasing very sharply uh in Japan probably in the US too so uh we are now focusing on those things do you have any uh hypothesis for why some of them should be uh related to chemicals Man. chemical exposure so when I talked to Dr. Domingo, his focus was on um, PFAS on clothing. Yeah. And, you know, he's been a toxicologist for, I don't know, 40, 50 years. And he basically, he became paranoid about everything and, you know, basically just wore wool. And But after a while, he just kind of gave up. I'm just curious how your personal life has changed with all this research. Have you become more nervous, less nervous, kind of? whatever just i'm curious how your daily life changes all right so myself uh not much changed um so my focus is to uh change the society uh change the industry change the regulators um uh, so that uh so that we can create an environment we can create the living environment uh where people can live healthier lives without noticing anything you know so as a public health practitioner, I also gave up, you know, trying to change people's behavior, you know, so people's behavior, not to drink, not to drink too much, not to smoke, to live a healthy uh, life. Um, it, it's it, uh, it's not effective very much. So uh, I'm moving on towards changing the environment uh, itself, for example, uh, built environment uh, or like um, uh, municipality itself or uh, chemical production itself so that people can live uh, their healthier life without noticing anything. That's interesting. Do you think that's a lesson just because of where did that kind of shift in change come from? So we need to inform public. Uh, so we need to inform like uh, their uh, consuming uh, behaviors as well. But, uh, but, but I think most important thing is to uh, is is that to is is a uh, change in the industry's attitude and or uh, government attitude towards those things. So that that is also why that I'm saying that this is uh, a very close to uh, uh, like uh, climate change. We need to change people's you know big industry, big countries you know uh, attitude towards this thing. Nakarama, I'm just curious what your relationship is with public policy people. Are they skeptical of your work? 
do they get you know more nervous how how do they support you or not support you i'm just curious what your relationship with them is with government um so we are you know almost part of the government you know uh we're under the ministry of the environment so we have the close communication with them and um, however they have laws regulations uh they kind of change very soon um so um so that is why well well this uh Jack's race to children's research is uh uh conducted by the uh government so that uh, they're they're willing to take the research output uh into their policy making are there any sectors that you feel that you want to study but can't because of either pressure or regulatory capture I mean, going back to your shipbuilding um, background or where you studied medicine, I'm just curious well, if there's topics in Japan that are just off limits. Well, I, I don't think so. Um, we can do uh, whatever we uh, want to do. Um, however, uh, for the research, we need to get the research funding. So that's the most important. Uh, but that's the bottlenecks, you know. Um, so. Oh, so you won't get the research, of course. You know, the funding for the research that might be right. Or we can do. Right. Right. So uh, my last question, Dr. Nakayama, what are some future threats that you're really worried about or interested in studying? Future threats. Um, so one thing is the, uh, well, climate change, but the other was the, I think, uh, urbanization. Uh, we are having uh, a lots of uh, in- uh, sharp increase in uh, pollen allergy. And then uh, this younger uh, children's are also um, uh, suffering from that. Um, so that could be coming from the urbanization. Uh, we need more green spaces. We need more natural uh, things. So uh, the next research I'm proposing is to investigate the uh, natural uh, natural environment on, on the effect of natural environment on our health. But we, we don't have any uh, modality to do the research. So uh, I'm proposing to do the research to develop some mod- modality to investigate that relationship between green spaces or uh, the natural spaces and uh, human health. Great. And then, Dr. Nakayama, I'm curious, if people are interested in your work, what's the best way for them to find your work or keep up to date with the work you're doing? Well, I don't know. Probably that's the your professions. But uh, and Well, I saw I that the JECS has publications, I, I guess maybe that's the best way for people to follow the ch- well, children's study or maybe yeah. your... Well, publication, English publication is not the best way for, the, for example, Japanese public. So we are now doing, we're making, for example, uh, YouTube videos and I'm, I'm, I'm creating those things uh, so that uh, children and also their uh, parents can uh, capture those, uh, 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 our findings very easily. And then my last question was... Um, Regarding COVID, how did Japan had a very different COVID public health experience than some of the Western countries? I'm just curious how your approach to public health has changed or evolved during that period. So COVID thing, yes, it's 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 a I think it's also the society matter, you know, how you deal with those things. Um so Japan is very different. And then I don't completely agree with the uh, process we took. Um, however, uh, we need to, uh, I think we need to, a uh, scientist has to work in the peacetime to inform the public, sci- uh, the scientific knowledge so that in this kind of uh, emergency time, people can take uh, their information very, very well. What were your critiques, mainly what was your criticism of the Japanese approach? Um, well, not the uh, not not very much the criticism, but uh, there was not. So J- Japan mainly takes like case report very uh, very much. So um, so how people died or who died and how many people died or something like so so, so such a kind of thing information. But however, if uh, so, the Japan has. Little experience in those the Japanese public, I, I would say, in this public health considerations, you know, so mass benefits. So that's the thing, you know. Interesting. So you don't. I, I was just curious because I, another researcher I was talking to, it just seems like the uh, polarization in Japan wasn't there, and his theory was obviously because Japan's more homogeneous. So I just was wondering if you were seeing any of that kind of polarization issues in public health in Japan. 
you know the HPV virus issue here, uh, HPV virus, HPV vaccination here. You know there was a very few, probably less than hundred reports of the side effect of HPV vaccination uh, about ten years uh, ago, and the Japanese government stopped doing the HPV vaccination. So at that time. Uh, during because of those uh, media uh, output of those uh, children affected by the uh, side effects, owing that due to that, hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of kids had disadvantages. You know, so of not having HPV vaccination in Japan, so we kind of take it back. You know, so so that's the Japanese society. You know, so maybe it is more complicated than the other researcher was saying. My last last question is: You seem to have quite a strong, fast passion. Where does that passion come from? I mean, most. <laughs> so I, I just where where do you get that? I, I appreciate that as a scientist. I'm just wondering where you get that passion for public health from. I think. That's I am a medical doctor, and then uh, my childhood, I was I was admitting the hospital very often, and then a doctor, pediatric doctor who treated me was very good, a uh, very nice female doctor, and then I wanted to be a doctor, and then but uh, also yeah, so <laughs> that's that's the thing, you know, my my justice, uh, I think environmental justice feelings uh, probably coming from that point. Great. Well, I thank you for your research and your time, Dr. Nakayama. I appreciate your... Anything else you'd like to share? No, thanks. Yeah. Have a nice day too.